I'm Mariana Vieira. And live from Glasgow, I'm Ben Horton, and you're listening to Undercurrents, the podcast from Chatham House. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Undercurrents. I don't know if you can hear some background noise. It is definitely not me, so it must be my other co-host, Ben. Uh, ben, where are you and how are That's you? That's right. Hello. Hi, Mariana. I'm, I'm very well, thank you. I'm in the green zone at COP26 in Glasgow. The UN Climate Summit is happening this week, and I'm currently at the Glasgow Science Centre, which is hosting the Green Zone, which is where members of the public can come to get involved in the whole in the whole process and find out a bit more about the work that everybody's doing to fight the climate crisis. That's very exciting. How have you been finding your, your time up there? Well, it's very cold, but Glasgow is very nice. I've, I've never been here before. It seems like a lovely city. It's currently encompassed in fencing and police which obviously lends it a very different sort of feel I suppose to normal but yeah it's been very interesting to be here meeting different people speaking to our colleagues in the environment program at Chatham House about all the meetings they're having and all of the events that are going on and yeah it feels I don't know I mean the bit that I'm in at the moment feels like a bit of a festival which is a a bit strange isn't it given that we're talking about something very serious but uh it's exciting i suppose in a in a way that is also terrifying because we're trying to avert catastrophe how's your week going (laughs) i am not involved in any impending life threatening decisions uh however i thought maybe you could tell us if there's any reason for your presence there that might be relevant for for the podcast or for this episode in specific there's literally no reason for me to be here other than to get the atmosphere that's that's occurring right now. There are speakers set up in here with birdsong. I don't know if you can hear that, but it's uh, mm-hmm. it's very nice. They're, they're not real birds. Um, it's, it's purely recording. But I'm up here this week to try and uh, get some interviews with people who are here. We've got not just for undercurrents, but also for the Climate Briefing podcast, which you can download wherever you're listening to this one. We've uh, been speaking to a lot of different people not just negotiators and experts, but also civil society, climate activists who are here, youth representatives, because, you know, so often in these big multilateral events, young people are kind of at the margins. So we've tried to correct that a little bit by speaking to some of them. And yeah, we'll be rolling that stuff out on social media and on the podcast feed in the next week or so. Interesting. And uh, should we let our listeners know what this episode is about? Yeah, sure. I mean, we've got two standard interviews this week, as though we weren't here, <laughs> which is just just happens to be the way that it panned out that both of our guests were outside of Glasgow. So I'm speaking to Kevin Rudd, the former Prime Minister of Australia and President of the Asia Society, which is an organisation thinking through the geopolitics of, of Asia, particularly with a focus on China. And I spoke to Dr Rudd about the geopolitical aspects of the climate crisis, thinking about, you know, obviously the relationship between China and the United States as two major emitters, as the two big players on the stage here doing the negotiating, really what they decide to do and the level of their ambition is going to have a big bearing on whatever outcomes come from from COP26 and and future conferences. So I spoke to, to Kevin about that and about the prospects for cooperation between those countries on climate change when you know at the same time there is a lot of confrontation in other areas of, of policy 
So yeah, so we had a chat about that. We also spoke a bit about Australia's climate policy, which um, has been the subject of some discussion up here in Glasgow as well, maybe not being as ambitious as, as it could be. That's the first interview that you're going to hear on this episode. And then Mariana, who did you speak to? So I also had quite a bit of a, a timely interview with Julia Olson, uh, ahead of uh, Youth Day. Julia is the founder, executive director and chief legal counsel of Our Children's Trust, a non-profit public interest law firm. Also, perhaps more exciting for me is that she wrote a, a, an article on climate litigation and children's representation for the current issue of the World Today magazine, uh, which you can either find on our website or if you're lucky enough to be with Ben up in Glasgow, we have sent some print copies to our pavilion, the Chatham House Pavilion. So in the interview, Julia and I talked about how she works with children and young people and uh, in terms of representing them when they decide to take uh, climate advocacy to the courts. This is especially the case with their landmark Juliana versus the United States case, which is still ongoing, or they're uh, in the process of uh, waiting on feedback on an appeal or the potential for an appeal. This process of taking things into the judiciary system is something that she explores, uh, not only in this article that I was mentioning, but also throughout the interview and which offers a starting point for the conversation. So we talk about legal frameworks in terms of the public trust doctrine. Uh, we talk about her work with the next generation of climate activists, both in the US where she's based, but also cases where they give some counsel abroad, so the international I mentioned to this, and even this very recent decision by the UN, one of the UN committees on a case brought forward by 13 young activists against a couple or a few developed nations. In the end, I also managed to ask Julia about her expectations for COP26 and the future of children's representation, uh, and I won't spoil it for you, so please keep tuned uh, to hear more about what she thought about the conference that Ben is currently in hopes or currently attending. Yeah, absolutely. Sounds really fascinating. And it's it's such an important topic, particularly as this episode is coming out, we hope, on Youth Day at COP26, where the whole conversation in theory, according to the COP26 presidency, will be about how we involve young people in climate action and how we encourage participation from that community. There is actually going to be an event this afternoon that Chatham House is running where we'll be speaking to some young climate activists about whether or not they feel engaged in that process. And there's a whole other range of content that you can check out on the Chatham House website all about climate and youth. So yeah, I hope you enjoy it and uh, on with the interviews. Kevin Rudd, thank you very much for joining me today. It's great to have you on the podcast. Good to be with our friends at Chatham House. It's great to have you with us for a conversation about, um, in particular, this kind of key dynamic of the cooperation between China and the United States on climate change, which really is pivotal to achieving any kind of progress at COP26 and beyond. So just to begin, I wondered if you could just give us a sense of the overall state of relations between the two countries on this climate issue. Obviously, President Trump, but then also to an extent, President Biden as well, have pursued quite competitive or confrontational policies towards China in the foreign policy realm more broadly. But how has this affected climate cooperation? What's the current level of engagement between China and the US on climate change? I think the first thing to understand about the Chinese position is that China chooses to act on climate change 
to the extent that it's consistent with uh, China's own domestic analysis of what is necessary. I think we can overestimate the extent to which the Americans are capable of leveraging the Chinese into a particular position, or the Europeans or anyone else for that matter. The Chinese are very much creatures of their own national scientific establishment. And then their own national scientific research concludes that A, climate change is real, B, it's generated um, by um, human activity, and C, that unless China helps bring this under control, then to use the technical Australian scientific term, by mid-century China could well be buggered. So it's not because of their love for you or their love for me or love for the United States or for the United Kingdom. China is acting because of the potentially out-of-control environmental consequences and economic consequences for itself if we do not um, stop runaway climate change. So we need to bear that in mind. Secondly, there is, at the same time, a Chinese interest in being seen to being a constructive global force on climate change action, because that also is consistent with China's desire to acquire global great power status by mid-century, not just a powerful country, uh, but one which uh, is seen as being responsible in terms of the global commons. So I think they're the two dynamics to keep in mind when we look at China's posture on climate change going to COP26. On this self-interest question, you, know, you hear this sort of concern aired, I guess, that different policy areas, different confrontation in, in different aspects of the international system can sort of bleed into one another and prevent progress in certain areas. So, for instance, you know, the US pursuing more confrontational trade policies towards China or the security dilemmas in the Indo-Pacific, for, for example, that we've been speaking about very much uh, in the context of AUKUS most recently, could in some way disincentivize cooperation or the kind of meaningful engagement that would lead to progress on climate action. Do you think, given that self-interest point that you made there at the start, that that's not really a credible concern and that, and that to an extent you can treat these policy issues as sort of siloed separate entities in that sense? My own judgment, though it'll be a contested one, is that they are semi-siloed. Uh, yes, there is a dynamic in terms of the new doctrine of American strategic competition towards the United States, which has been the prevailing orthodoxy since 2017. And that secondly, the Chinese don't like that. And thirdly, it is uh, manifest across multiple domains in the relationship, military, broad foreign policy, human rights, and the rest. But I think we overstate it when we say that this um, fundamentally impedes China's um, predisposition to act on climate change. In fact, there is something of the reverse logic at play. What the Chinese would like to do is to see uh, collaboration on climate change assist in, as it were, restabilising the overall US-China relationship in a manner which has not been possible over the last four years. And certainly, by definition, it was not possible under Trump, who didn't believe in climate change in the first place. So I think if we take all those factors together, I think still we are left with primarily China's domestic constituency interests, its energy security interests, which I think are probably the most predominant element in the equation. And certainly as China moves towards the northern winter, concerns about the security and stability of electricity supply. These are more dominant concerns in the Chinese overall 
policy matrix rather than the current dynamics of the US-China relationship or the Europeans or anyone else um, screaming and shouting in the hope that um, this will induce the Chinese to higher levels of activity. But as I said, there's one caveat to this. China would wish to be seen as a responsible global actor. Uh, and that is the point at which there is some collective international leverage points which are possible. And in my judgment, from the developing world, and particularly those who are most concerned about coastal inundation, such as the group of small island developing states uh, right around the world. Just to delve a bit deeper into China's climate policy as it currently stands, obviously they announced a, a, a newly updated nationally determined contribution, NDC, which is the marker for all the states participating in the COP process. Um, China's was announced last week. What did you make of that? And, and more broadly, what do you make of the extent to which they really are pursuing an increasingly ambitious strategy? Obviously, we saw earlier in the year that they've uh, announced they'll no longer be funding international coal power projects, but then domestically, there is still very high investment in coal power, for example. So do you think that, I mean, obviously it's a difficult tightrope to walk and we're never going to see a sort of silver bullet that just changes everything instantly. But um, what do you make of where China currently stands in terms of its tangible policy on this? Well, climate change action, the Chinese um, arc has been bending uh, since the Copenhagen conference, which I attended, of the parties uh, back in 2009 where the Chinese, together with the Indians, sought to torpedo the entire operation. Through to 2015, where Xi Jinping, in partnership with Obama, uh, decided to make Paris work, through to the present, where we have some progress further in China's domestic position on climate, but not as good as we want. The three big decisions which we should point to are uh, Xi Jinping's statement 12 months ago that China would have as its target carbon neutrality by 2060. And importantly, that has now been translated through a process of, as it were, reverse engineering into the 14 five-year plan and down into the provincial and sectoral plans of the Chinese economy, which was announced in March of this year. Secondly, the statement you've just referred to, which is the cessation of Chinese official financial flows uh, into coal-fired power stations being constructed abroad, which have left unconstrained would have landed uh, BRI-funded coal projects as being probably one of the world's largest emitters by mid-century, uh, had they not put a cap on that. Uh, but they've now joined the Japanese and the Koreans in bringing official financial flows to a stop. So that too on the positive side of the ledger. On the negative side of the ledger is the NDC just announced a few days ago, which is unambitious. It is simply a summation of existing policy actions already announced rather than new ambition for the future. So I think that is a problem uh, in terms of the aggregate success of um, COP26. However, Xi Jinping may choose uh, to use his speech, at least rhetorically, to point to further Chinese action into the future. That's an open question. We do not know when uh, he will make that statement. We don't know its final content yet. But absent the mathematics of a new set of parameters in an NDC, we're then thrown back to, as it were, the linguistics uh, of what will be contained within his speech. 
and our focus should be there. Yeah, absolutely. You mentioned the role that Xi Jinping played at Paris um, in 2015. Do you think it's significant that uh, he won't be attending in person in Glasgow this week? Or do you think that that doesn't really matter in the Zoom age? (laughs) I think it matters only at the margins. The reason for his non-attendance is not because he's not interested and not committed, but being a you know team of Marxist-Leninists uh, who are forever paranoid about the security and well-being of their leadership, I doubt that they would conclude internally that this was safe for the leader uh, to be uh, in Glasgow in the midst of what they would conclude to be a less than sterile environment in terms of COVID-19, certainly compared with... Uh, the zero-tolerance regime towards COVID that you've got domestically within China. Secondly, Xie Jinhua, the Chinese representative, who has been China's representative for the last 14 years, has the complete confidence the Chinese party and state, is enormously experienced negotiator, knows all the senior players well, including John Kerry, who he has worked intimately with for a very long period of time. And so I don't think there's going to be a problem at that level. Xie Jinhua will know intimately how far his negotiating parameters extend from Beijing, and he will know how far those can be nudged, uh, just as John Kerry will know how far he can nudge things on the part of the United States, although, of course, he'll have President Biden in the room at least for part of the time. So just uh, to come to COP itself then, how are you feeling before we get into sort of the, I want to ask you some questions about how these, how these conferences work, given that you've, that you've been, but how are you feeling about this particular iteration? It does seem like there's been, again, a very mixed picture. There's been some, some good, <laughs> some good signs running up to this, um, particularly on climate finance. I think the Biden administration's announcement at the UN General Assembly was very positive there, but there's also a bit of a, sense of caution or pessimism that we're going to see the progress that's needed. Where do you stand on it? Look, I think to be fair to the British government and Alex Sharma, I think they're doing as best they can under difficult circumstances. Now, the British government's domestic posture on its 2050 target, its 2030 target, the enactment of domestic legislation, the empowerment of a domestic climate authority to make it work in practice Um, This is very much gold standard stuff. So to be fair to the British government, though they're not of my personal political coloration, I think they have done quite a reasonable job in bringing, as it were, the authority of the chair to bear on this um, through um, Alex Sharma's work. However, secondly, there have been three pieces of bad news, and perhaps four. One, President Biden hasn't got his uh, package through the United States Congress yet. And that is a problem in terms of the momentum of a conference. Two, we have this disappointing NDC uh, from the uh, Chinese. Three, we have what I'd describe as at best an equivocal outcome from the G20 in Rome, uh, when it should have been an unequivocal outcome in garnering uh, momentum, even on something as frankly modest and doable as the $100 billion Green Climate Fund commitment which has been, as I understand it, deferred until 2023, uh, as opposed to being committed to in full by now. And then, of course, you've got what I describe as um, the other rats and mice, including uh, recalcitrant states like Australia, uh, failing to 
lift their own national effort in order to provide some additional momentum to what's necessary if you're the chair of the conference. If you're the chair of a conference, you need momentum. Momentum comes from actions being taken by individual states. So having a recalcitrant like Prime Minister Morrison arrive saying we're not doing any more vis-a-vis 2030 is frankly very unhelpful in terms of um, what the British government is seeking to achieve. I didn't want to, to get too deep into the uh, to the Australian uh, stance on COP, but just as <laughs> as we're here and as you've brought it up, I wanted to ask just for listeners outside of Australia who may not be as au fait with the domestic dynamics on climate change, what's underpinning the current government's kind of reluctance to increase their ambitions? Why, you know, given we've we've all seen the sort of extreme devastation caused by the wildfires across Australia in, in recent years. Why is it not a more domestically, politically salient issue? Is, is it that the electorate aren't pushing for climate action or is it that the government just aren't prioritising it? Yeah, two core reasons, and it's been a factor in Australian domestic politics for about the last 10 years. Since I think um, I left office, in 2013 and prior to that as well. The two big factors have been a relentless campaign by the Murdoch media in Australia against any form of climate action. And in fact, the Murdoch media in Australia, which runs 70% of the print media, running a campaign almost parallel to what you see with Fox television in the United States and creating a climate of fear on the part of people that if you act on climate change, you're going to kill jobs, undermine energy security, and increase the cost of living for working families. That's been the Murdoch mantra, certainly against my government and against any government that has sought to do anything constructive on climate change. And so that has been, frankly, the orthodoxy for the better part of a decade. The second factor is not as only as that Murdoch's ideological position, uh, but also because it's in his commercial interest, together with the Conservative Party in Australia, uh, not to in any way alienate the hydrocarbon lobby within Australia, represented by the coal companies and the gas companies, and more broadly, the mining sector overall, which have been dragging their feet on this for a very, very long time, uh, led by such dinosaurs as Rio Tinto, or as I now call them, Rio TNT, and BHP. Now, they've all claimed to have had their Damascus Road conversion. Uh, Murdoch's now claimed to have a Damascus Road conversion on carbon neutrality by 2050. Morrison's now claimed to have been on the same Damascus Road and fallen off the same horse, it seems. But the bottom line is these are notional exercises in greenwashing because if they were serious, there'd be a commitment in Australia to a robust 2030 target in order to get there a commitment to robust and enforceable legislation in order to get there and to be given effect through a robust independent climate authority to make sure it's translated sector by sector, including, of course, the uh, the energy sector. Thanks very much. Now, just finally, I wanted to uh, ask you a bit about, from your experience, you know, how progress at COP can be achieved. And obviously, we're speaking today just at the start of the two-day leaders' summit, which is kicking off the fortnight of negotiations. I wanted to ask how significant that part of the negotiations will be. Is that really when the big decisions will be made or will it be in the kind of nitty-gritty that then gets sort of ironed out through the next two weeks in the far more sort of complicated negotiations within the Blue Zone in Glasgow? 
So could you give us a bit of an insight into the dynamics there and how important the, the Leaders' Summit will be? Yeah, usually at any conference of the parties, there are three realities. There's the external reality, which will be consumed on television, which is what happens with public protest. Let's call it the um, public spectacle of uh, what goes on at a conference of the parties when you've got tens of thousands of uh, civil society activists uh, who are going to be present. That usually has little impact on what goes on inside the room, but is often what people consume most through the media. The second is the formal statements of delegation positions uh, in the formal conference room, uh, where 193 nation states will make a formal declaration as to what their position is by way of generic policy and hopefully in relation to their nationally determined contribution, their NDC for 2030. But third, and this is the important one, it's uh, effectively the small group negotiation, usually made up of about 20 or so states. It was in Copenhagen. I don't think it was much bigger in Paris, where normally the chair, in this case Alok Sharma or um, Boris, depending on uh, how it's been conducted, either at head of delegation level or head of government level, uh, where the hustle has to happen. And that's where someone actually needs to take the pen. In Copenhagen, at various times, I took the pen in that negotiating room. And the Danes who were chairing the conference had the pen most of the time. And that's where you actually, through a core text, try to achieve the next level of breakthrough in producing a more robust and content-laden outcome than the one which would normally be kicked around by the conference secretariat out there on the formal conference floor. It's those three realities which we need to focus on, but the third is the most significant. Obviously, the timings of when we're doing this interview and when it will be published and things is very complicated, and I don't want to force you to sort of pin your colours to the mast or anything, but in general, do you think that, are you hopeful that COP26 will provide some progress on the kind of big issues, the adaptation, finance, mitigation, and, and then more broadly, do you think that this is really, I know the UNFCCC process is what we have, but do you think that there is still sort of life in the Conference of the Parties model for dealing with climate action? Is, is this ultimately how we're going to solve this problem going forwards? Yeah, the public policy process through the UNFCCC, backed up by the uh, International Panel of Climate Change Scientists, frankly, is the formal architecture under international law to make this work. We can criticise its efficiency, we can criticise its effectiveness, but, um, you know, like the United Nations itself, in the absence of the UNFCCC, then what do we have? That's the first point. Secondly, if we look at the, the transition since Copenhagen to the present, it's significant. Still, in terms of the ambition gap, if everyone honoured their Paris commitments, we would still be only one-third of the way there in terms of the level of ambition in, in greenhouse gas reductions by century's end that would be necessary to keep temperature increases to 1.5. So two-thirds still has to be done. But frankly, that's better than where we were at Copenhagen. And it's, it's better than when we were than we went into Paris. So we actually got to take a longer view of this. But here's a third point. In Paris, I think we had a situation where government was kind of ahead of where corporations were. But right now, as of Glasgow, corporations are now well ahead of where governments are. 
in what their shareholders and their stakeholders are now saying to them as is necessary to bring about a set of more radical uh, greenhouse gas reductions. So I think under the architecture of the Paris uh, Agreement, the role carved out for corporate leadership here, corporate finance, corporates who are engaged in climate technology, but also in carbon markets, now becomes absolutely critical to, in fact, dare I say it, outflank governments in their, their own level of ambition and what they can achieve, to pull governments forward rather than where we were five years ago, which was governments pulling corporations forward, or five years before that with me, governments, only a few governments pulling the rest of the governments forward. So I think you know, the arc of history bends very slowly towards climate justice. Fantastic. Kevin Rudd, thank you very much for joining me today. Good to be with you. Hello there. Hi, Julia. Thank you so much for being with us today. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me. As some of you might know, uh, Julia wrote or contributed to the latest issue of the World Today magazine, the October-November issue, which is open on the website free of our access until the end of November, which we will link uh, in the show notes. Julia's article uh, looked at climate litigation and the case for our children's future. So I thought we want, we could start by looking into some of the things that you highlight in the article. Specifically, you explore the role of your organization, Our Children's Trust, in helping, quote unquote, children take advocacy to courts. What can climate litigation and action via the judiciary system deliver for the young activists that you represent? And is it enough? It's a really important question right now. And I, I think the, the biggest answer is that in constitutional democracy, which is what we have in most countries around the world today, the purpose of government is to really ensure that fundamental rights, basic human rights are protected. And we do that by naming those rights and constitutions, but many systems of law also do that by courts declaring what our rights are that are fundamental. And then it's the role of government not to deprive people of those rights and to not get in the way of, of not just this generation, but all generations really holding those rights and, and living them. And we're in a situation right now with the, the climate crisis being a threat to many of our basic human rights. And the third branch of our governments, the, the judiciary, the courts, they've really been silent and on the, the outside of this vital issue. And what's happened is our political systems, political majorities, uh, the powers that be in government have been taking action for decades that have really been destroying the planet and destroying the climate system. And so climate litigation, particularly on behalf of young people, is bringing those political branches of government to account and holding them accountable for protecting the basic human rights of children. And you did mention this purpose of government, which reminded me of something else that you mentioned uh, in the article, when you look at the need for these constitutional checks on the actions of politicians. And you talk about a climate tyranny. And I wanted to ask what you mean by this, but also if you think that in your opinion, democracy is working for climate action. Yeah, I think, you know, when we think about tyranny, we think about a, a real abuse of power for 
for a few number of people, right? It's taking away what's human in all of us and putting in power and in control um, something that is, is damaging to the majority of people. And what's happening with the climate crisis is really a function of a lot of power and money being concentrated in the hands of a few who are profiting off of extracting the Earth's fossil fuels and burning them for various purposes. And governments are really sort of in bed, complicit with with that power and money system that we have right now that's keeping this really old, outdated technology of producing energy in place. It's an ancient way of producing energy. We have so many better ways today. And the only thing that's keeping it there is money and power concentrated in the hands of a few. And so I I think we do have a a climate tyranny right now, and it's really going to be at the expense of children and vulnerable people around the world. The other part of your question is democracy up to this challenge. I think we're in the midst of understanding that and, and trying to figure out if our constitutional democracies will rise to the challenge. As a lawyer in the United States, I still believe in the system. I think that we can make it work, but it's going to take a lot of people. And importantly, it's going to take judges really having the courage to do their constitutional job, to be the the last line of defense for young people in protecting their human rights in the face of climate crisis. So the jury's out on that question. Will our constitutional democracies really address this problem in time? Definitely. And when you talk about defense, you've mentioned uh, in the article that I was alluding to earlier that the one of the bases uh, for the legal framework for addressing climate crisis is this public trust doctrine. I was wondering if you could tell us a bit more about what the doctrine entails and why is it instrumental for the work that you do? So the public trust doctrine is a really elegant law and I think its origins are really in indigenous cultures But the sort of place where it was first written that I know of was during Roman times in the Justinian Code in about, you know, the year 500. And since then, it's it's been a concept that's been passed down to both common law and civil law countries. And what it says is simple. It says that people form governments as trustees and in their trustee capacity, they're responsible for protecting the vital resources that we all need for survival. So uh, in the Justinian Code, the emperor named air, water, the seas and the shores of the sea, and light, actually, which is interesting because light or sunshine is something so vital to this next era of energy production, right? And so government as trustees, they their job as any trustee is not to just protect their own interests or the interests of one particular person today, but, but all the beneficiaries. And the beneficiaries include people not yet living, but all future generations, um, life on the planet. I quite like the idea that this doctrine is like a, a thousand and five hundred years old and we're still going back to it and seeing its values, not just for now, but actually uh, for the future. And when you talk about uh, governments, 
I did have a little read around and I noticed that your organization, our Children's Trust, does work that is both national and international. And you have some ongoing cases in Norway, Pakistan, Colombia, Canada, and, and other countries, I believe. I wanted to ask if there are or what are the challenges in operating in these other uh, national contexts and in a more international scale? So when we founded our Children's Trust in 2010, our goal was to have cases brought on behalf of youth suing their governments for violating their human rights and the public trust doctrine all over the world. And some of the cases that are on our website are cases that we have worked directly with to help get off the ground and launched with our local partners, attorneys, and young people in those countries. But what has also happened is our work, and I think the Juliana versus United States case in particular, has inspired so much of this litigation that we're seeing now. I think there are have been over 25, maybe 30 cases filed against governments um, on behalf of youth in other countries outside of the United States. So the effort is really growing exponentially, and we support many of those cases. I think the, the key thing about those cases is it's important to look at the laws of the country in which you're working to see where those human rights are, are found. Are they in the Constitution? Um, are they in international treaties? Are they in statutes? So we look for where they're found. And then we try to work to bring young people to those cases who really can show how they are being harmed today by the climate crisis and by the conduct of their government. And at our Children's Trust, one thing that is vital to our cases is that we are bringing the best science into the courtroom. And when I say that, what I mean is the targets that people often talk about in the Paris Agreement of keeping heating below two degrees Celsius with a goal of 1.5, those numbers are dangerous. Uh, I just want to say that again. Those numbers are dangerous. We cannot have children live in a world that goes to 1.5 degrees Celsius or two degrees Celsius heating above pre-industrial temperatures. We're at about 1.1, maybe 1.2 degrees of heating already today. And what my clients, what young people are facing just in the Western part of the United States with wildfires and smoke, it's not livable over a lifetime. So we have to do better by our kids and really bring the best science into the courtrooms on their behalf. And when you talk about science, do you think there is also a role for economics? And I say this because what you were saying now just reminded me of this article I was reading where this economist professor was talking about how the basics of this model of discounting, how economic models value the future assets of life compared to the value today, basically means that economists have grossly undervalued the lives of young people in future generations. So do you think it's more of a an effort from different parts of society and different sectors as well? Yeah, economics is really interesting. And we we work a lot with this issue of the discount rate. And I think it's it's an insidious secret that people don't understand when it comes to the climate crisis. I learned a lot about it from Joseph Stiglitz, who's a Nobel laureate economist who works with us in the Juliana litigation. And 
he has explained that, you know, really when we're talking about high, high risk scenarios that have intergenerational implications, meaning people in the future could be far worse off and experience far greater dangers than even we are today, that you shouldn't use any discount rate. There should be a zero discount rate when you're looking at government policies to address those problems. But instead, what happens is what you said. In nearly every decision that's being made with respect to how we produce energy or how we deal with climate pollution, governments are applying discount rates right now, usually around 3%, but in the United States, it's been as high as 7%. There are people advocating it should be lower, but these discount rates, they, they say that the benefits of doing something about climate crisis are not significant enough sometimes because it will cost us too much today. And that's only because of the discount rate being applied to those financial economic considerations. And what I just learned recently that blew my mind is the IPCC reports, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which are the international summaries of science. They're, you know, by the time they're producing those reports, they're several years behind the times, but they are an important body of information that the world's governments have relied upon. And those IPCC reports are using discount rates when they're looking at models for how we could transition off of, off of fossil fuels and the timeline for achieving emission reductions, they are using discount rates. So that whole process of even what's happening in Glasgow and the reports that they're relying upon are really discounting the value of children's lives and they're discounting the value of future generations. So there's bias built into the system even as our leaders go to the table to try to negotiate solutions. I think you made a, a really good point about international bodies sort of being behind the times. And this reminded me, I don't know if you're aware of this case uh, that these 13 young environmental activists brought to the UN's Committee on the Rights of the Child against Argentina, Brazil, France, Germany, and Turkey. Uh, and it was about uh, these countries violating precisely their rights to life, health, and culture if they fail to cut down the greenhouse the gas emission levels to, to the levels of the Paris Agreement. And uh, basically, the UN body said that it would not hear their case until they had taken it to individual national courts, which could take years. And I wanted to ask, what do you make of this, of this decision by such a, a prominent international body on climate litigation, essentially? Yeah, I'm I am familiar with it. We we consulted a little bit on that effort. And it is a principle in many of these international bodies that citizens need to seek relief or remedies or solutions from their own governments and their own courts first before they take things to the international level. However, there are often exceptions available to that situation. And I, I think that body got it wrong. I, I think it didn't fully understand what is happening globally. But what I will say is I do agree with what that body held and what courts around the world are holding is that there does need to be domestic enforcement. 
So, you know, I live in a country that won't even submit to the jurisdiction of the International Court of Justice. You know, the United States won't go before these bodies and many of the most polluting nations won't. So we do absolutely need domestic enforcement and we need domestic courts to be holding their governments accountable. And then I think there is a very important role for these international bodies as well. And they will play an increasingly important role as domestic enforcement happens. And um, how do you reconcile the sort of nature of legal proceedings with the urgency of, of climate crisis? Do you see a role, uh, which you were just alluding to a little bit earlier, but what role do you see once this level of domestic enforcement is in place, hopefully soon? I would hope that some of the, you know, the issues that are still more in the soft law context at the international level, the right to a healthy and safe and sustainable environment, or as our courts have recognized the right to a climate system that sustains human life and liberties, that those rights would become hard law. Um, there are people looking even before the International Criminal Court to name the deprivation of those basic human rights to a clean environment or to climate, to climate stability, that those could become crimes against humanity should countries and corporations continue to perpetuate the climate crisis. So I think that it's important that the international law evolve um, both in tandem and in response to what's happening with domestic law. And it's very important for people to understand that the enforcement of international law and the treaties that our leaders may or may not agree to is only as good as the domestic enforcement or the, the conduct of the international community as a whole, right? It, like, it would take sanctions to force many countries to comply with international agreements. And so it's going to take people rising up all over the world to hold governments accountable by being in the streets, by voting, by making this issue more and more front of mind for every leader every day. And we need judges. Without judges, we will not find a solution to this problem because politicians have too much interest in keeping the fossil fuel industry in place. And that's the reality. I think that's a very, a very persuasive point. And when you're talking about people having to sort of rise uh, and vote, it reminds me of something else that I was reading from your article earlier on from the magazine when I read it. And it said something about that the children do not have the vote and thus they have no political powers, which does speak to this issue of children's representation, I think, more broadly. And it also comes up in discussions in the context of the Women, Peace and Security Agenda. And it got me thinking about, and this is what I wanted to ask you is, how, how do you think we can ensure children's needs are not being silenced by virtue of their limited access to politics or political decisions, especially in the situations when they're disproportionately affected, such as when it comes to climate crisis or, or in situations of conflict? Uh, what are your thoughts on, on that? I think children and young people need to have a seat at the table that's not symbolic. Young people are powerful. So when, when I say they don't have political power, I in no way want to take away their power to create change. And in fact, I think every real social justice movement on the planet has been led by young people. So they are incredibly powerful. 
But until there are people in positions of power who are willing to really, truly hear them and treat them as stakeholders, it's hard for them to have a difference because they can't vote because they don't typically have the money that it takes to lobby effectively. So the the one branch of government where young people are treated as real stakeholders and have a seat is the courts. Courts can't turn young people away because of their age or their lack of resources. And it's really, really important for people to understand that, that they have real legal power and rights in the courtroom. So that's one thing that I think we need to continue to expand across the world is their access to courts and justice. But I think world leaders could also really have more meaningful participation by young people by giving them a true voice and a seat at the table, at a decision-making table, and um, letting them have a vote in other contexts. Instead of just bringing them in to speak at the United Nations and have their photos taken with leaders, actually give them a say have them come up with some of the solutions that are on the table. And maybe we need to consider lowering the voting age across the world. And in your eyes, what does the seat at the table look like? So what would this decision-making process look like? Well, uh, you know, I'll give you an example. Um, Here in the United States, there is an environmental justice committee that is supposedly making recommendations to the White House. So it's a committee that was formed by President Biden's White House. And there are young people who sit on that committee, along with other people who come from environmental justice communities, and making recommendations that don't have to be considered, that don't have to be presented to the president's cabinet, that don't have to be turned into any formal policy isn't really giving a young person any power. So rather than just giving young people a seat on a committee that can make recommendations, why not say that there will be actual policies that come out of a committee that go forward to rulemaking bodies and they have to be considered as part of proposed rules coming out of, say, our Environmental Protection Agency. You know, why not give a young person a seat on the president's cabinet? We're really at a moment where young people have their whole lives are at stake in this moment to not give them a seat in a real politically powerful moment. Why not have a young person sit at the president's cabinet and be a voice? As you know, I think this week there's a big table kickstarting in in, in Glasgow for a couple of weeks, that being obviously the COP26 climate summit. I wanted to ask you, what are your expectations for the, the conversations that are going to take place? And by this, I mean, are you optimistic or hopeful? And is there a specific development that you would class as an achievement if it took place in the next couple of weeks? What I'll say about that table is I do believe that there are people who are going to Glasgow who are representing governments around the world who care deeply about this issue. I think even people like John Kerry from the United States, who will be our chief negotiator, I think he cares deeply about the climate crisis. And I think the political institution of the United States, 
and the powers that be will not allow John Kerry to do what his humanity tells him is ethically necessary or even what he is legally obligated to do under the U.S. Constitution to not deprive young people of their life and liberty. So I think it's a very sad table that there's so much good intention and so much heart and so much humanity and so little courage to stand up against the power and politics of our world right now and to do the right thing. And of course, there has to be buy-in like on the question of, of loss and damage and how much money those nations like the United States that have contributed so much to the devastation happening to, for instance, small island nations. Um, and the transfer of money will be a huge sticking point. You know, countries already are not contributing the money that they promised to help the countries that are still developing their energy systems and their sustainability to be able to do that. So there's an unwillingness of the wealthy nations to hand over money to the less wealthy nations. And that's going to be a huge problem. And then I think on the emissions reduction side and the fact that the commitments by the world's countries are not adding up to what the Paris Agreement even requires, much less what science and our climate system requires. You know, maybe we'll see some additional minimal, you know, incremental steps on that front. But what we need at this day and age are not incremental steps. We need monumental steps. And I don't have a lot of hope for that, given what I see from my own country and other countries around the world. But I, I wish them well and I wish them courage. Just this point that you made about uh, having to stand up to power is is almost ironic that power is meant to be, as the word says, empowering, and it's more about standing up to it. And I think that uh, even if you're not as optimistic about this particular table, I, I do feel like the work that you've outlined and talked to us a little bit about when it comes to climate litigation sort of shows a way and the path in which uh, definitely things are being done, whether it's outside the room or not at the table. Uh, so I'll take that for my own personal uh, optimism and 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 as a way of being hopeful. And I think I'll leave it at this. Thank you so much, Julia, for your brilliant insights. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. Okay, so we're back here at the Glasgow Science Centre at COP26. I hope you enjoyed both of those interviews. Uh, I'm just going to go off and see if I can find some more interviews for you for next week's episode. <laughs> In the meantime, if you want to hear more about our work on climate change, then you should check out the Climate Briefing podcast, which is available wherever you're listening to this. And also just check out the website, www.chathamhouse.org, where the homepage currently is climate, 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 everything you need to know. So, uh, yeah. Hope you enjoy it. And uh, while Ben is on his quest for more content, if you've liked the content that we've put out so far, please feel free to like, share, give us a review on all podcast platforms. It really helps us and it helps other people finding our content more easily as well. So we'll be back next week with another episode for you. Until then, thank you so much for listening.